0: Well, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a few copies behind the pillar back there. Um, you can stand up and go ahead and get one. If you don't have a copy of God's Word or if you need a new copy of God's Word, uh, go ahead and take that. That's our gift to you. Um, go ahead and take that. We'll replenish that table as needed. Um, yeah, and then turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. We're going to be looking at a text that I think is... <laughs> I know we've dealt with some pretty difficult topics over the last few weeks, but I think that this might be the most difficult for us. Um, there's a lot of ink spilt on these several verses here, verses thirty eight through forty two. I mean there's a lot of disagreeing about these these verses. Um, but what we want to do is is find what Jesus intends to say to us here in these these verses this morning, these five verses in Matthew chapter five, verses thirty eight through forty two. This is the fifth of Jesus' six statements that he makes um, about what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. What does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus wants to communicate that to us um, because of what he says in in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5. He says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he wants wants his followers to hear that, and he wants them to be shocked. He wants them to listen to that statement, and he wants to think about the things that that he's going to say through that lens. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And he he just said to his followers, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what he's going to do is he's going to reimagine, sort of reinterpret a bunch of things that were commonly thought by the religious leadership in his day, and he's going to give him sort of this reimagining. And how he wants to reimagine this is through the lens of verse 20, and then at the end of this passage, in verse 48, where he tells his followers this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And what Jesus isn't saying there is you must get everything right all of the time. What he is saying is that what you do do, the things that you do in this life must flow out of a wholeness, a completeness, a newness that only comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He was going to accomplish that. He was bringing that to fruition in his life, in his ministry, and it would all culminate in his death, burial, and resurrection, ascension, where now he rules and reigns at the Father's right hand. He provides this transformation, this inner transformation for us and making these six things then possible. Remember, these six things aren't exhaustive. They're not meant to be six things that, that show us exactly how to live and then we discard any, any other thought process or any other thinking. But they're supposed to be this principle based discussion about how the kingdom citizen lives. So we've looked at several different ideas. We've looked at anger. Jesus told us about anger, he told us about lust, looking at another with lustful intent. We talked about divorce and remarriage. And last week we talked about our speech and how our speech is meant to honor God as the one who, like Mark said earlier, brought everything into existence through the Word. And Jesus is the incarnate Word. So our words carry weight. But like I said, I think that this text this morning actually has, is a little bit more difficult for us. One, because we kind of look at it and we think to ourselves, what what is this? And two, because... There's a whole host of interpretations here, but we need to be consistent with how we read our Bibles, and we need to look at this text the way that we've looked at the previous ones in our time together. So let's read this together. Verses 38 through 42 in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this to his disciples. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, So as we've explored the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen Jesus' teaching, wants to show his disciples what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom, and that citizens of the kingdom of heaven, look like this. And in each of the instances that we've looked at so far, the kingdom citizen is looking to maintain right relationship with fellow image bearers. He's looking to maintain right relationship with those who are around him, believers and unbelievers alike. And we've seen sort of these so what statements that Jesus makes in each of of these uh, passages. We seek to maintain right relationship with those who we come in contact with in our world through people we come in contact with in our world through radical repentance. Through urgent reconciliation. Through loving others as we're inclined to love ourselves through humility and honesty in our speech. And why is this all important? Because right relationship with God's image bearers indicates right relationship with God. Right relationship with God's image bearers indicates right relationship with God. And these two ideas are inseparable. You can't take these apart. You can't break these down. Oftentimes in our in our world, right, we get upset with people. We're we're inclined to get upset with people. We huff and puff when our calf shear at the grocery store it gives us the wrong change. We look for time off from our kids when our spouse gets some. We want that to be. We want an exchange there. We're trying to manipulate others and use people to use to get where we're going in life. But the kingdom citizen is patient. The kingdom citizen is kind. The kingdom citizen is merciful. The kingdom citizen shows grace to others. The kingdom citizen is loving because that's what God is towards him or her. And when we are impatient, unkind, merciless, graceless, and unloving towards others, it indicates that we have not understood what God has done for us and extended to us in Christ. And so we come to this passage. That, well, first, there's a couple of things that we need to think about in this passage. And I'm sort of going to give you the conclusion up front to give you the conclusion up front because I think it's helpful because there's a lot of a lot of different interpretations about this text. There's some weird conclusions that are drawn from this sometimes. I want to give you the conclusion up front so you know where we're going. The first is just simply a question. First is a question. Are you prepared? Are you this is to you. Are you prepared to suffer the loss of all things in following Jesus? We'll we'll see that our passage this morning indicates that nothing is off limits. Dignity, possessions, time, energy, finances. Jesus wants to ensure kingdom citizens understand what they possess in this world. What they have here in this life is not something to defend, but rather something to relinquish. So first then, ask yourself that question. Are you prepared to suffer the loss of all things in following Jesus? Secondly then, again this is the conclusion. Secondly, if you're in Christ, your suffering is not wasted. If you're in Christ, your suffering is not wasted. Suffering in this life is not a cruel requirement leveled against people by an unloving, cold, Vengeful God. Suffering is God's chosen way, time and time again in the New Testament and in all of Scripture. Suffering is God's chosen way to transform us into the image of His Son. People ask, this question comes up all of the time in our world. Every single day, people ask this question How could a God who loves me allow me to suffer? How could a God who loves me allow me to suffer? And and here's the response. This is the biblical response. Are you sinful? Do you sin? Is your tendency to act in sinful ways? And uh, the, the answer is provided, yes. The correct question then becomes how is not then how could a loving God allow you to suffer the correct qu- qu- question that is how Could a loving God not allow you to suffer? Jesus came and died on your behalf to make a way for you to enter into right relationship with God. And your primary purpose here on earth is to bring God glory by displaying to the world what the kingdom of heaven is like and you're displaying to the world what the kingdom of heaven is like by being transformed into the image of Jesus. And so if he chooses to use that means and method, then that is what we need to understand. So do we think we should be exempt from suffering? If that's what you think, then you've placed yourself on the throne of your life and made yourself God in our living in direct opposition to the creator of the universe. That's a hard thing for us to hear. That's a hard thing for us to digest. So let me give you some scripture. There's no way around this. Romans 8:16 and 17 The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Colossians 1:24 Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is the church. Philippians 1, 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 1 Peter 2.21 For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 1 Peter 4.12 and 13 Beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. How many of us live this way? Something bad happens We suffer something and we think to ourselves, why is this happening to me? But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is a temporary reality. If you're in Christ, your suffering is not wasted. If you're in Christ, your suffering is not wasted. We'll get to this at the end. We'll conclude with our conclusion also. No matter how much your emotional turmoil you're in, no matter how much physical pain you're in, no matter how much psychological damage you've endured, no matter how much spiritual dryness you're experiencing, no matter how difficult your home situation is, no matter how difficult your kids are, no matter how difficult your spouse is, no matter how difficult your parents are, no matter how difficult your work situation, no matter how much you wish you could undo past decisions, no matter how burned out you feel on life, Your suffering is not wasted. It was not wasted in the life of Job. It was not wasted in the life of David. It was not wasted in the life of the Apostle Paul. And it was not wasted in the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. And because it was not wasted in the life of Jesus Christ, you can be assured with the greatest assurance that it's not wasted in your life either. So this morning, it's, it's simply not possible, even though it's Labor Day weekend and we're just, a room this size, this many people in a room like this, it's just, it's not possible for some significant suffering to not be taking place in, the, in here. And I know it's true for some of you. I know some of you are just really good at hiding it. So the question is now, how do we get to that point from this text? So let's, let's think about what Jesus says. Let's spend some time thinking about what Jesus says in this text. And like we've done every week, we're going to look at what Jesus said, or what the, the disciples have heard, and then what Jesus says, and then kind of the so what that comes out of that. So what have Jesus' disciples heard? Just look at verse 38 with me. He says this. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Where have his disciples heard this? Well, they've heard it in the, in the law, in the Old Testament. Exodus 21, 23 through 25, Leviticus 24, 20, 17 through 21, Deuteronomy nineteen, twenty-one. All of these passages contain almost this exact statement. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and in some instances, a life for a life. So what, the way that this would have been explained uh, in the first century was the idea of commensurate punishment. What does that mean? Punishment that fits the crime. What is a punishment that fits the crime? A life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's punishment that fits, fits the crime. Simple, clear, concise. And sort of the heart behind these Old Testament passages was to prevent was to prevent excessive punishment or revenge being taken on someone who committed a crime against another. And so now Jesus brings these up, and this is what his what disciples have heard. And so Jesus, some people have said that this is contradicting what Jesus is about to say. I don't necessarily think that's the case. So before we move to Jesus, what Jesus said, consider to, to, about me, with me about what Jesus said a couple weeks ago when we thought about divorce and remarriage. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus tells, uh, Jesus tells the Pharisees, he tells this, the scribes that a certificate of divorce could be written because of their hardness of heart. And this is a similar situation. I think that this is a similar issue here. This was written down, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, or a life for a life was written down because of hardness of heart. If someone intentionally takes a life, if someone intentionally takes an eye, if someone intentionally takes a tooth, it's because of hardness of heart because of inward sinfulness, because of human depravity, it's because that person has ignored, the initial person, the initial offender, has ignored the underlying mandate to love God and love neighbor. And so commensurate punishment, or punishment that fits the crime here, needed to be written into law. So they wrote it into law. God gives it to Moses. Leviticus 19, 18 if that was understood and applied in every circumstance, the kingdom would be, would be pictured. Leviticus 19.18 says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We see this pop up time and time again in the New Testament, particularly in Luke 10 in the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, so that we're very familiar with. The scope there of neighbor is opened up, not just to be uh, sons of your own people, and not just to be limited to nationalistic identity, but not just your own people group, but to all people groups. Who then is my neighbor is exactly what the lawyer in Luke 10 asks Jesus. And as citizens of the kingdom, we're called to love our neighbor, and that includes everyone. That includes everyone, not just the person next door, not just the people you work with, not just citizens of the United States. Not just people who are racially similar to you or socioeconomically similar or in your same age demographic, not just your family, but everyone. As you guess, it's because of sinful action and lack of love for neighbor that the law of commensurate punishment or punishment that fits the crime had to be written. And it's because of sinful action and the lack of love for neighbor that, that we in our world have to stop at stop signs. Because 99.9% of the time when you're driving, 99.9% of the time when you're driving, if, you, if you're thinking about others and you're loving your neighbor, it takes the 1.1% of the time to blow through an intersection and hit somebody because you've got to get somewhere because you're only thinking about yourself. Even our own laws in our own world, something as simple as a speed limit, is a result of the understanding of what it means to love neighbor. So what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? Look at verses 39 then through 42, the rest of this text. Jesus gives a handful of examples here. And Jesus, what he says in verse 39, he says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And then he gives these four examples. Jesus wants to construct this picture of non-resistance, what it looks like to be a non-resistant person and non-retaliatory in this sense. So the first example then he says if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other also. What does that mean? <laughs> Jesus, we, we, we quote that often. Turn the other cheek, right? Turn the other cheek. Um, To be a Close, careful Bible reader here is very important. Most people in the world are right-handed. It's The way that it is. Most people are right-handed. To get struck on the right cheek is a backhanded blow. Jesus would have known this, and that's why he says it. It's a backhanded blow to get struck on the right cheek. Now, in Jewish custom and Jewish law, um, for stri- striking someone would elicit a fine. If you hit someone on the left cheek with an open hand as a right-handed person, you would be fined a particular amount. If you struck someone backhanded, you would be fined four times that amount. Now I'm not sure what it means in our culture or, or our day. I've never been backhanded before. But in the ancient world, being backhanded by someone was an assault against dignity. It was an assault against their value. It was an assault against their personhood, oftentimes done to slaves. And now Jesus doesn't tell his followers here to collect the fine, right? Because that would kind of fall in line with the eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth understanding. Why does he not tell them just to collect the fine? He doesn't just say, well, I say to you, do not." uh, uh, but anyone slaps you on the right cheek, go ahead and collect the fine. But what he does say is turn to him the other cheek. Why does he say that? I think he says that because, remember, he's showing what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And what he's saying is the kingdom citizen should be prepared to suffer the loss of all things, and their pursuit of following Jesus by loving neighbor, even their dignity. And then Jesus goes on, right? And he says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And the ancient world frivolous lawsuits really weren't a thing, so this person who was suing you is probably doing so with just cause. They probably have a reason to sue you and a reason to take your your tunic. So Jesus then says, give him your cloak also. And a a cloak was the undergarment, right? Tunic was worn on the outside. Cloak was worn underneath. And a cloak would have had more than just an undergarment sort of uh, a meaning or use in in the ancient world. It would also have been a blanket to sleep under. As well as a few other things. And so why would Jesus say to his followers, let him have your cloak as well? I think it's because the kingdom citizens should be prepared to suffer the loss of all things in their pursuit of Jesus by loving neighbor, even their possessions and their comfort. And Jesus goes on. He says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The Jewish people were occupied by Rome, right? They were under Roman rule. And the Roman military would have been around and was regularly present in their lives. And under certain circumstances, the military was able to requisition a person from an occupied people group to carry his equipment. And no matter how many soldiers, uh, no, no matter how many soldiers or how many people, they could do this, and they could go back and forth, and they could unjustly uh, requisition this this uh, this service from from an occupied people group. They oftentimes abused this power. In this instance, Jesus calls his followers to go an extra mile. Why does he call them to do that? Because the kingdom citizens should be prepared to suffer the loss of all things in their pursuit of following Jesus by loving neighbor, even in their time and energy. And then Jesus concludes, and he says in verse 42, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus encourages his followers Not to ignore the needs of others. And for many first century Jews, if you were not handicapped, it would be preferred to die over beg. But Jesus says, which would have come a a significant amount of judgment if you weren't handicapped. But Jesus says to them, The kingdom citizen should be prepared to suffer the loss of all things in their pursuit of following Jesus by loving neighbor even their financial resources. So he gives these four examples of common things in their society. Things that they would have understood. Their dignity, their possessions and comfort, their time and energy, their financial resources. And says, none of these is as great as following me. And again, some people have argued different things from this passage. They've looked at it and they've said, well, Jesus is a pacifist. Or they said, Jesus means to divide out private and public life. And what this doesn't mean here is that <laughs> is that justice isn't a thing, or that we should live divided lives, or that we should allow abuse to go unchecked. Rather, it means that who we are is not tied up in what we have. Who we are is not tied up in what we have, but who has laid claim to us. Nothing can revoke our kingdom citizenship. Nothing can alter our eternal trajectory. Nothing can break our identity in Jesus. People can rob you of dignity by backhanding you. People can take away, rob you of your possessions and your comfort by taking away your tunic. People can force you to go a mile and sap you of your time and your energy. People can rob you of your financial resources, but no one can alter who you are because of what Christ has done on your behalf. So what? So what, Jesus? What, what is this all about? Again, we started with our conclusion, so we're kind of getting where this is going, right? Jesus intends for his followers to find their identity first in him. This is not an uncommon theme that we've touched on throughout the time, our time in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, it's a pretty regular theme. comes up over and over and over again. And it's really simple math if you think about it. I'm not good at math, but, but I can do this much. No finite thing can add to something that's infinite. No finite thing can add to something that's infinite. Two plus two might be four, but two plus infinity is still infinity. What are you talking about? You're crazy. Okay. If you all have, if all of you have for eternal life is granted you in Christ, why hold on to man's approval? Why hold on to possessions? Why hold on to earthly comfort? Why hold on to our energy levels? Why hold on to our financial resources? All that we need has been provided for us in Christ. If these things are threatened, if these things that Jesus outlines are threatened, Jesus says, let them go. Do not resist the one who is evil. And you can do that because of the immensity of the gift you've received in Christ. The newness that has been given to you, a newness that you couldn't create yourself. A citizenship that has been brought about not by birth or by taking a test. If our earthly things are threatened by others, we are to willingly part with them because they do not define us. They do not make up our identity as a kingdom citizen. Regardless who wrongs you or how they wrong you, you are called to love your neighbor. Now again, we need to consider the fact that abuse needs to be dealt with. We understand that we talked about that two weeks ago. Physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, these these things cannot go unchecked in the life of the local church. We need to adjust these injustices, seek to reduce the effects of sin on our world that are carried out against God's image bearers. But the underlying principle here is a heart that forgives. A heart that is ready and willing and prepared to forgive you may find yourself in an abusive relationship and dramatic action needs to be taken to get out of that situation and the church needs to intervene in a dramatic way. But you are called to forgive regardless of what you've suffered. You are called to forgive regardless of what you suffered. And this really finds its grounding in who Jesus is and what Jesus suffered. Scripture describes Jesus as the suffering servant, particularly in the book of Isaiah. We read from Isaiah earlier. A chapter earlier from what we read in verses 5 through 7 in Isaiah 50. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Jesus was unjustly accused. He was beaten, he was mocked, he was spit upon, he was scorned. His beard was plucked from his face. I don't know if all of you have had a beard before. I have. It hurts when your kids pull on it. And he was murdered. And yet, he did not retaliate. He spoke forgiveness in that moment. He patiently endured Because he, in that moment, was enduring all those things so that you don't have to. He patiently endured. Because in that moment, he endured all of these things so you don't have to. And he calls you to trust him to restore right relationship with God the Father. You see, we're all seeking comfort. We're all seeking joy. We're all seeking satisfaction. We're all seeking an end to our suffering and by doing the things that Jesus says in these verses what we're doing is we're proclaiming to the world that there is no other source other than the person and work of Jesus Christ that can provide us the comfort that can provide us with the end of suffering that can provide us with the joy that we're looking for We continue time and time again to go to sources that can't satisfy, that can't end our suffering, that can't provide us with comfort, that can't bring us joy. Jesus, again, he gives us a handful of, here, of them here. Dignity. We want a place of honor and respect in our society. Gosh, we want that. We want people to look at us and pat us on the back and say, congratulations, you're a really great person. We want possessions. We look for satisfaction in the things that we have. We want comfort. We want to avoid problems or awkward situations. We want finances. We think that security in our finances will give us peace, but none of this is true. Trusting in any one of these things will only result in emptiness. It will only result in despair. It will only result in a cycle of frustration because it will burn up and blow away right before our eyes. But Jesus endured all all that he did so that you might be called God's child, so that you might become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He died to end your pursuit of empty crap and garbage that clutters your mind and vies for your attention and seeks to be that source of satisfaction, comfort, and joy that you desperately need. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And because he's there, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, he can ensure that joy, that satisfaction, that comfort that you so desperately desire can be found in him. So I think that's that's what this passage is saying. I think it's saying that these things can't be robbed from you. No matter how much it appears to be taken from you here on this earth, your dignity, your possessions, your time and energy, no matter how many times those things are robbed from you, they can't alter your eternal trajectory. They can't change how God looks at you as, you as his child. They can't change that place where you find yourself as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And he says, find comfort, satisfaction, and joy there. So, conclusion this morning. Many of us, like, we, we all or find ourselves in a position where something is not right, something's not the way that we want it to be in our world. And some of us in this room have suffered at the hands of other people a lot. Like, a a lot, a lot. And these things seem to continue to be robbed from us all of the time, every moment of every day. And we've turned our cheek. And we've gone the extra mile. And we've given up our cloak and we, we're standing on the edge of a knife this morning. It could go one way or the other right now. You can't imagine moving forward in your marriage because of the never-ending conflict. You're ready to walk out on your job because people have walked all over you and used you as a doormat. You've been used by people. You feel like your suffering is too much to bear and you feel like you're done. But Jesus says here, Jesus says here, the strength to move forward in this world is not found in people getting theirs. It's not found in retaliation or resistance or revenge. The strength to move forward is found in the fact that Jesus endured all things. With no exception on your behalf, which means unequivocally that your suffering is not wasted. God is using it. God is deeply invested in you. He purchased your life with his son. He's not throwing you aside. We look at our suffering and say, why has God cast me aside? He has not. He has not forgotten you, and He is taking you and shaping you into exactly what He intends you to be. He has given you the greatest purpose in the universe to glorify Him, to know Him, to make Him known. To display to the world what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And your suffering is causing you. Your suffering, the things that you suffer, the loss that you suffer, everything that you suffer in your world is causing you with maximum effectiveness. Is causing you with maximum effectiveness to grow in that purpose to glorify him, to know him, and to make him known. So could it be this morning that you feel like you can't go on because of the things that you've suffered? Because you have a wrong understanding of what your suffering is and what it's achieving. Could it be that the reason you're suffering seems oh so insurmountable because you're trusting the wrong thing? You're trusting your social standing. You're trusting your material possessions. You're t- trusting your financial resources. You're trusting your time and your energy levels. You're trusting all these things in place of Jesus Christ. And I would submit to you, I would submit to you this morning that that might not only That's not only a possibility, but it is the case for each of us. If your day-to-day suffering wrecks you, it's because you have a very small view of God. Can the creator of the universe not use your difficulties to bring about his purposes? He's the creator of all things. He can and he is and he will accomplish his purposes here on earth. The question is this. You should find great comfort here. Romans chapter 8. We've gone here time and time again in, in, this, in, in our last several weeks. Romans chapter 8 for different reasons. But the question is this. Paul poses it he speaks this rhetorical question and he says to his roman readers he says this what can separate you from the love of christ what can separate you from the love of christ do you think that it's your suffering paul says no romans 8:35 through 39 who shall separate us from the love of christ shall tribulation I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. With the greatest assurance. You can be certain that you can be assured that your suffering is not wasted. Citizens of the kingdom, if you're here this morning and you are in Christ, if you have trusted Christ to reestablish right relationship with God and to spend eternity in your presence, or in God's presence, Citizens of the kingdom of heaven understand that what they have here on earth is nothing compared to the secure, eternal inheritance they have in Christ. Therefore, therefore, they can respond with grace and forgiveness when they're struck on the cheek, when they're sued for their cloak, When someone forces them to go a mile, when someone begs from them, they can respond with grace and forgiveness when they are wronged in the here and now. Let's pray.